This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Blaze Radio Network. And now, Reform This with Dr. Sudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Great to be with all of you again. Hope you all had a wonderful Mother's Day weekend. God bless all the mothers in the world. And uh, thank you to my mom, especially uh, who along with my dad, had the courage to come to the United States of America, right, the year of my birth, 1967, and uh, gave me the greatest gift in the world, which is not only, obviously, of life, but the opportunity to grow up and be an American and live in this country and serve and be with all of you. And also thank you to my wife, the mother of our three children, who has been an unbelievable role model for our kids and uh, have been uh, has always been an unbelievable uh, wife, partner, and especially in this weekend, an amazing mother. This week we have uh, a lot to talk about. There are a couple cases I'd like to talk to you about. One, we talked briefly about the religious freedom issues of the call to prayer or ordinance that was passed in Minneapolis that under the behest of what they felt what they thought were the demands of their 70,000 Muslim population, give or take. They thought they were doing a good, and we'll see. Uh, there's uh, possibly a lawsuit pending on this, and I want to talk about that. And second, a, another one of these lawsuits about hijab, about the freedom of a young schoolgirl to wear a hijab, and this one involves the interference of the fencer. Ibtihaj Muhammad, and I've talked to her. I've talked about her before, and I want to uh, spend a little time on that case, as the investigative project on terrorism has brought out some concerns about what was represented publicly in that case, and uh, also hopefully the vindication of a teacher who was being maligned by the Islamists. So. First, the topic everybody's talking about lately is AI, artificial intelligence, and uh, a lot of uh, very fast-paced progress being made in that area, um, in an area that's been studied and been um, obviously making fast-paced progress for years now, but it just all went public, and now we have students, businesses, and others using Chat GPT and others to produce work product that used to be human and now is being done in a synthetic artificial way and not in an organic human way. And now we've, we've seen recent calls by intellectual leaders, including Elon Musk and others calling for a pause. And, you know, Bill Gates had 
for once a, a I think, a very interesting response that uh, I agree with, which is, well, wait a minute, if we pause, the good guys are pausing, while those who are the enemies of freedom and the enemies of humanity, be it Chinese autocrats, Islamist theocrats, whatever it might be, are going to continue moving forward in fast pace to try to create artificial intelligence mechanisms that would be a threat to all of us. So we need to, just as whether it's in a defense posture or whatever it might be, our technologies are about protection and the development of AI can also be a tool used for protection of the good, protection of humanity. And uh, I wanted to first take the opportunity as somebody who studied ethics, bioethics, and the principles undergirding the principles that drive the practice of medicine, the practice of health and wellness and illness, that why hasn't there been, you know, and, and I think this is part of the conversation that America, that the free world needs to have is that as we develop this technology, begin the conversation of developing ethical principles of the approach. What are the areas we don't go to? What are the areas we do? And in medicine, as technology evolved, so too did bioethics. In medicine, as we realized that in the civil rights movement, for example, in the greater community, we began to come to even better terms with what it meant to be equal, to be um, non-prejudicial, to uh, reform the against the some of the blights against civil rights and others that exist in our community. We were doing research on, on prisoners. We were uh, there were experiments done at the time of World War II and elsewhere that were really. Uh, unforgivable and, and should not have been part of medicine, and yet it took the development of bioethics and the principles to to enforce those, to educate doctors and the healthcare industry about the need for those principles, and then ultimately lead to their enforcement. Now, similarly with AI, where is the study of the ethics that should underpin artificial intelligence where is the study what are the principles um, we we talk for example in ethics that patient choice patient autonomy respect for humanity respect for human dignity should be preeminent and then come other principles of beneficence doing good non-maleficence doing no harm and distributive justice what are the principles that will underpin artificial intelligence is it simply related to research that will prolong life? Is it related to efficiency in product or the intent? Is it all related to intent as a lot of legalisms in the West are related to having positive intent in what you do? And no, sometimes the pathway to hell is paved with good intentions as the old adage goes. So what are some of the areas that should underpin the ethical principles of artificial intelligence? And we'll talk about that on this program, as I think we're going to see that the countering of many threats, be it domestic or globally, will include a vetting of public information that will include artificial intelligence. And I've 
talk to you about the need for a free flow of public information and no restriction, even on from the imams that are the most radical. Now, obviously, not to leave calls for violence and terrorism publicly, but their availability publicly, I think, allows us to to um, you know dive deep into their data to um, have that access so that we can look at trends and if you remove it then the research ability for regular humanity goes away and it's simply the domain of various government agents and 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 the radicals themselves that might have in their closets or in their basements or whatever storage clouds they may have and and i think this is the important part of the the whole debate of free speech and availability of information and what should or should not be removed because ai Artificial intelligence, I think, is going to be only as intelligent as any computer adage goes, is that garbage in, garbage out. It's based on how much data you have, and the artificial intelligence now is going into exponential gains because we're seeing they're letting the public use it. And as the public uses it, the goals of artificial intelligence will begin to be meted out. Now, as that information exponentially evolves at what point do we begin to remove some of that information because it might be used for ill will now again i would err as so many have spoken and barry weiss has a good column in her free press this week on is ai the end of the world or the dawn of a new one and it's not hyperbole she talks about some of the leaders from Google CEO, Sundar Pichai, to Gates, Musk, and others. Is it like nuclear weapons? Uh, that might be exaggeration, but there's no doubt that the unknown is <laughs> that unknown. And as a result, there's a brave new world out there that could ultimately be something that we don't have control of and in some ways nuclear weapons are similar in that they were used for deterrence but ultimately were the worst in human history when we ended up having to not only threaten to use them but to use them now it doesn't mean that making that comment means that you we were again or you might be against what we did in world war ii with the use of nuclear weapons but at the end of the day, you could make an argument ethically that it prevented a much greater loss of life. But again, that kind of a tool, not only having it available, but ultimately using it and the death that it brought might be an ethical barrier that should not have been available. But then our enemies would have had nuclear weapons and they would have used them. And where would we be? These are issues that are better to discuss early rather than later. Is it too much? Is it exaggeration to discuss it with AI? I don't think so. It's really different scenarios, different situations, and can't simply password protect or bit lock certain things that you don't want the AI computers to be able to get a hold of. But on the other hand, we need to have always stay five to ten steps ahead of the AI itself. A lot more to come on that, as I think it's one of the cutting-edge issues of the next decade and more. 
and uh, I will continue to share that with you on this program. Now, let's talk about this call to prayer ordinance that is happening in Minneapolis that uh, appropriately is raising First Amendment questions and uh, a uh, not too well-known website called the Minnesota Reformer actually talked about the fact that the Minneapolis City Council last month removed restrictions on the hours that mosques may play amplified calls to prayer. So for those of you who missed the story, it basically they passed through the city council, I think it was unanimously or by by only one negative vote, that they can, you know, Muslims pray five times a day. First prayer is at dawn, and uh, right before dawn, rather, and that's between somewhere between 3.30 and 5 a.m. There's a call to prayer. Next prayer is at noon. Next prayer is in the mid-afternoon, like 3, 4 p.m., Next prayer is in the evening at dinner time, 6 to 7 p.m., and last prayer is at 9 to 10 p.m. And right before every one of those prayers is a call to prayer that is a very specific, you could even call it an evangelical-type prayer, as it says, all ye faithful, God is great, God is great, come to prayer, come to prayer. And that is a paraphrasing of it, but bottom line is is it is a call to prayer now where is that heard can we compare it to church bells as i've discussed on this program a few episodes ago it's a little different Uh, first of all the hours for church bells are typically 8 a.m 10 a.m noon on a sunday once a week maybe twice a week if a few other services are included not 35 times a week five times seven days a week And basically, as the article says, the new ordinance allows Muslims to play the call to prayer from the mosques around the city. More than one mosque. This is a cacophony of mosques that would do this. The customary five times a day from pre-dawn to post-sunset. The previous noise ordinance prohibited the call to prayer known in Arabic as the Athen during certain early morning and late night hours, but the widespread blessing of the new measure, which was unanimously approved, it was unanimously, I'm sorry, by the city council and praised by Mayor Jacob Fry, overlooked some of its vulnerabilities. The litigation might be regarded as in bad faith for the purposes of trolling the city and the Muslim community, because why would you sue? It's really just a good, it's a good measure, but everything has its precedence, right? And you're going to see a statement, uh, if you look at claritycoalition.org, many of us, Muslim and non-Muslim alike, believe in the threat of political Islam and are looking towards either reform internally or defeat externally. Bottom line is, is this is the proverbial camel's nose under the tent, under the tent, meaning this is not only a religious freedom issue that is not religious freedom, but rather a supremacy of one faith over another, but could also then allow any faith that has certain demands to become dominant over the other. So it's not just about Muslims, but what are the benchmarks? What are the barriers, the obstacles that we should have in what determines what rights, public rights, not only private rights to practice and personal faith, pietistic practices, but public rights that a faith community and faith group can ask above those of another faith community. Because there are substantial, legitimate legal issues arising from an ordinance like this that warrant some scrutiny. 
and cannot easily be brushed away under the frivolous litigation rubric, as some might say that this litigation is going to do, and the, suing the city saying that this is not part of the First Amendment, that it is restricting the freedom of other faiths to practice their own, and it is giving Muslims a leg up, if you will. So under the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, government bodies may not give preferential treatment to religious groups or religious practices. There's some flexibility. The Minneapolis measure would appear to give preferences to one particular religion, religion, a form of favoritism that is not condoned under this provision. And again, it's, a, it's an easy test. What if every faith community had some type of loud noise measure that it asked for? Drums and, and uh, um, hymnals or, or other loud music that uh, um, portrayed their own personal pietistic beliefs. And some of the questions in previous U.S. Supreme Court case, Lemon versus Kurtzman, the determining, this is from 1971, the determining the validity of the Establishment Clause challenges asks the following questions. Does the policy have a secular purpose? Does the measure advance or inhibit religion? Would a legal challenge involve excessive entanglement by the judiciary of subject to litigation? So it's interesting. Even though it's a non-Muslim government, are they advancing the establishment of religion through government? Now, some said, well, we do prayers at beginning of football games, etc. And some of that has been challenged, actually. But you know, it's different when it's just sort of a, a cultural respect for generalized faith communities once in a while versus... And I think one of the examples that can be used is faith accommodations. And I talk about this in my book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, where a teacher in Chicago wanted to ask for the ability to go on her hajj, her pilgrimage to Saudi Arabia. And it was, she had only been a teacher for two years, mid-20s, and um, had asked to go for three weeks. And it was right in December at that year when... Hajj was happening, so she wanted to go for three weeks, and it was during finals, and the union in Chicago district, school district, said, uh, you know, you can't. We can't. Uh, imagine if every teacher was to ask for three weeks. This is not a reasonable faith accommodation. And in my book, I talk about the fact that this is a penultimate example. The Obama administration sued on behalf of the teacher and then ultimately forced that district to pay 100000 or some kind of uh, amount, and then also to have a cultural re-education for its administrations and teachers, etc., about cultural mores and respect. And I found that to be absurd. And I was hoping that it would be challenged in the Supreme Court because, imagine, this is not about just faith accommodation. If every faith group Everyone decided that it needed three weeks off for some major faith practice. And by the way, as I've testified before, there are certain things, if you know the Islamic faith, the hajj is something you have to do once in your life. The hajj is something that you usually, if you talk to most Muslims, they do sometime, usually in their 40s, 50s, 60s. 
And we can talk about the orthodox theology of why it's usually done later in life. It's when your debts have been paid, etc., etc., and it's typically not done young and um, right at the beginning of your first job. Now, who are we to, to make that judgment, a theological judgment for that teacher? It's her personal business. It became relevant, though, when she demanded a special treatment from the government that somehow had to find someone to fill in. And then the unions, and who am I to advocate for any rules made by unions, God forbid. But at the end of the day, it's relevant to this case as the unions, the the non-government, the left, if you will, with the union folks decided these were the rules. And now all of a sudden the Islamists wanted to change that and got the Obama administration with their White House influence operations to to sue. And I don't believe that was a reasonable accommodation. What's to make reasonable? Well, reasonable would be something that you could reward, honor with everybody that asks for it. And then you go through some of these questions. Does the policy have a secular purpose? Does the measure adhere or inhibit religion? Would a legal challenge involve excessive entanglement by the judiciary if subject to litigation? That three-pronged standard has been subject to substantial unease, including on the part of some of the justices themselves. Antonin Scalia, in his customary language, equated in a subsequent opinion to a ghoul in a late-night horror movie that is repeatedly killed and buried only to rise, Lazarus-like, as it stalks First Amendment religious jurisprudence. His colleague Clarence Thomas thought that it was utterly indeterminate, preferring instead the test to determine if the measure in question constitutes an endorsement of a particular practice or sect. So you can see there's different interpretations of what the role of government should be in protecting certain religious practices or religious beliefs or religious requests to be honored by the government. The lemon tenet still remains the prevailing law, and the Minneapolis measure seemingly fails to satisfy any of the three prongs, let alone all of them. It's clearly not secular. Its effect undoubtedly is to advance the religious practice of Muslims, but no other religions. And any legal action would embroil the courts in having to assess certain features of Muslim prayer practices, which would create the type of entanglement that is frowned upon by the Lemon Law. And certainly there's other considerations, as this piece talks about. There's a free exercise clause in the First Amendment, which conflicts with the Establishment Clause. And while... You know, the, the latter prescribes governmental assistance to religion in general. The former necessitates accommodating religious practices and preferences. They just need to be balanced. And that's why I'm glad this legal challenge is being brought. By relaxing limits on noise from mosques, the city's ordinance may fall within the religious exercise clause. Fry argued that view equating it with ringing of church bells. But Christian bells are not sounded at 3 a.m. or 11 p.m. Or, and, and they are pretty nondescript. 
So there's a lot of concerns. But I would tell you that to me, as an American, as a citizen, as a believer in the freedom of religion and our first liberty, that one of the core premises of Western society is the deep-founded respect that one person's rights end. They begin with themselves. They begin with choice, with the freedom that we have a huge huge amount of tolerance for things that might irritate us as long as it doesn't harm somebody else in a physical, violent way, and also as long as it doesn't infringe on their rights. So that last part, we have give we give our citizens latitude and their rights go to the point in which they start to infringe on the rights of others. So the rights of the mosque to broadcast its prayers should be only limited by its infringement upon the rights of others. And also, if we were to grant that right to everybody, what would be the impact upon their rights? So free speech, to be able to speak at the corner and say things publicly, whatever it is, if everybody can do that, then fine, it's free. That's free speech. So that's why it's such a right that should be protected because anyone can demand it at any time through whatever venues they want. But also, if we were to talk about public spaces that should be protected with respect for all, if those public spaces, it's like if you have a road in which you travel on and you insist that you are going to block all the roads while you bring your vehicle, which is the size of a home, in your family's vehicles, which are six homes, and they block most of the, the way, that, that there's ordinances that prevent that. Because we want not only reasonable traffic, but my rights end where they start infringing on the rights of others. And this is the same when you talk about public airing of audio related to faith practice. It can't be willy-nilly whatever's the louder band at the corner speaking and playing for that faith group, but it also has to be limited by what would happen if every faith did that. It has to be limited by does that infringe upon others. If you're a devout Christian or non-Muslim of any kind, atheist, and you hear this chant over and over, that infringes on your own rights to reject that, to not agree with that. Now, if that happens once a week for five, for and the length of that by the way is about 90 seconds let's say so if it happens for one to two minutes once a week versus 35 times a week that's a big difference i think so there's also a threshold like i mentioned with the teacher asking for the ability to go to hajj if it's for five days that's fine for three weeks through finals that's a bit too much more to come on that. We'll continue to follow that closely. Last, the fantastic investigative project on terrorism had a piece that talked this week about this seven-year-old girl in New Jersey that um, CARE and other Islamist grievance groups had said that she was... She was attacked and, and um, 
discriminated against because of her hijab by her teacher. And it seems, as the teacher is thankfully defending herself, that there is no, appears to be a concern that there is no truth from most of the story that's being presented by the Islamists. And that's not new, by the way. Care is notorious for using fabricated information, for not vetting the cases that they take. Or if they do, then they participate in the confabulation that is that story. Now, this one also is interesting in that it also involves Ibtihaj Muhammad, who weighed in publicly on Twitter and elsewhere. And you'll remember I've talked about Ibtihaj. She's the fencer, wears a hijab that was on the Olympic team years ago. And I just found it amazing that so many Muslims who were not Islamists that could have been sort of the face of minority rights and Olympic teams, whether it was Dalia Muhammad or others who did fantastic. But no, it was only Ibtihaj Muhammad that was the role model for Muslims because she was orthodox, because she was a skin-deep Muslim that you could tell was Muslim because of her hijab versus a core anti-Islamist, patriotic, moral, ethical Muslim that wants to fight against the ideologies of radical Islam and political Islam. But no, that's not the barometer. The barometer is who can be used in identity politics. But let's get back to this case. And as the investigative project says, Ibtihaj Muhammad made history as the first hijab-clad athlete on the U.S. Olympic team. The bronze medal-winning fencer from 2016 Summer Games was featured on magazine covers, spawned a line of sportswear, and even a Barbie doll. But in court papers last week, a New Jersey elementary school teacher says Muhammad deserves a different reputation. Liar. In October 21, social media posts, Muhammad accused veteran school teacher Tamar Herman of abusing a seven-year-old Muslim student by forcibly pulling off her hijab as the young student resisted. After exposing her hair to the class, Herman then told her that her hair was beautiful and that she did not have to wear the hijab anymore, Muhammad wrote. Herman insists that didn't happen and contacted Muhammad to offer her side of the story. But when Herman, who had Muhammad's cell phone, texted to say her post was completely false, terribly damaging, never happened, Muhammad ignored her. Ibtihaj Muhammad then says she has no idea who Herman was. And Muhammad claims in her filing in court in New Jersey that, I'm sorry, Muhammad's claims in Herman's filings in New Jersey are outright falsehoods. Herman says that there's further evidence of her actual malice, reckless disregard for the truth. Care had taken the story and made it a national outcry. It generated national attention when Care and his New Jersey chapter called for Herman's firing. And they said, our children must be protected from anti-Muslim bigotry and abuse at school. The teacher who pulled a second grader's hijab off in class must be fired immediately. And on and on in their blatherings. Now, I'm not saying that if that was true, then the teacher should be punished. But they want to use a case as if there's some kind of a rampant, viral uh, attack of Muslim women happening in the West, when in fact, 
Muslim women, if there is any place they're being attacked in a viral way, it's in Saudi Arabia, it's in Iran, it's in Afghanistan, it's in Pakistan, Muslim-majority countries that these Islamist organizations should be paying attention to where women are prevented from going to school, prevented from working, attacking. Attacking those women that want to be independent, that want to have their own rights. Just ask so many of the heroines that are marching in the streets of Iran. Herman filed her lawsuit in federal court against the South Orange Maplewood School District and a consultant it worked with for their roles in a malicious and anti-Semitic campaign and for violating her due process rights. She also sued Mohammed Kerr, its New Jersey chapter and its director, Maksut, in the state court alleging defamation. Karen moved to dismiss the case in February, saying their arguments largely were accurate and therefore not defamatory. And Muhammad and Maksud embraced Kerr's filing. And Herman argued last week that none of the parties made any effort to determine if the accusation was true. Not even interviewing any of the aggrieved people present in the class. Muhammad, despite her claims to the contrary in support of her motions, knew Herman well and had the ability and opportunity to communicate with Herman about the allegations, yet inexplicably she declined to do so. For their part, the CARE chapters, CARE National, clearly didn't care about the truth. They simply parroted Muhammad's false accusations without any concern for accuracy. Herman had been teaching for 30 years with a stellar reputation. Now the public was to believe that she just attacked a a, a young Muslim girl and removed her hijab. What's the truth? According to the filing, Herman said that the entire episode was a misunderstanding. The seven-year-old girl normally wore a form-fitting hijab to class, but on the day in question, she had on a sweatshirt with the hood covering her eyes during a lesson. Herman asked the girl to pull it back, thinking the hijab was underneath. But when the girl didn't respond, Herman said she gently brushed the hood back because it was covering her eyes. When she saw no hijab, Herman said she quickly pulled the hood back into place, covering the child's hair, and apologized. Herman would have told this account to Ibtihaj, the fencer, or care, but she never was given the chance, according to the filings. The evidence of actual malice, reckless disregard for the truth is overwhelming, and Muhammad in her social media posts on a third-hand account based on third-hand account of the events emanating from most unreliable source, that being a young child. And by the way, to add to this, the filing points out some of the raw anti-Semitism. And listen to this. The girl's parents, Cassandra and Joseph Wyatt, each have made anti-Semitic statements about Herman and the incident involving their daughter. They've said, to the Washington Post, Jews monopolize a lot of stuff for money, Joe Wyatt told the Washington Post. The Semites, they run Hollywood, they run a lot of stuff. It's all Jewish names. This is not surprising, is it, to those of you who follow this program and elsewhere, that Islamists who do these kind of things as they put the West 
teachers, school systems, government, media on defense as somehow always being bigots. Behind them is a raw, venomous bigotry and anti-Semitism that's truly who they are, not the countries that they live in in the West. Whatever happened between the Wyatt's daughter and Tamara Herman, the teacher, was about religion. No doubt, he said, there was always been a conflict with the Muslims and the Jews. That's what her father said. That's why they are fighting in Palestine. The teacher may say it was a mistake, but in the end, it was no mistake to her. The child's mother has changed her story and made her own social media posts, admitting that her reaction changed once she learned Herman is Jewish. According to Herman's lawsuits, the girl's mother initially told the principal that she understood the incident was a misunderstanding, but she quickly changed tone upon learning she's Jewish. And then there's a a tweet or a post in which the girl's mother said, all in caps, I just found out the teacher is Jewish. That's why I believe she did it now, and I'm furious. A Jewish teacher that taught at Jewish school, a public school for 30 years, pulled my Muslim seven-year-old daughter's hijab off, claiming it was a hoodie. She's Jewish. That's not anti-Semitism, folks. I don't know what is. If that doesn't show sort of where we are as a sentinel case of a lot of these claims of bigotry and hate that come from the Islamist organizations, I don't know what does. Herman refuted Muhammad's claim that she did not know Herman. And despite the story's shaky foundation and the ongoing damage to Herman's career and reputation, Herman is litigating a personal and political grievance. Muhammad's lawyers write. But in a written statement filed with the brief last week, Herman says that Muhammad simply did not care at all whether the facts alleged in the post were true or false. She desired to make the post to create publicity for herself and her clothing and book businesses, all of which would generate income for her and social media cloud for her cause. Why? Because she sells hijabs. Because it's part of her shtick. The resulting harm was cruel and needless. This sums it up pretty well in which the Attorney says, until the filing of this lawsuit, I knew nothing about any of the Wyatt family's views toward Jews or any other religious group, Muhammad says. She knows now, but it hasn't changed anything. The word of anti-Semitic parents and a second grader is more credible to Muhammad, Ishtihaj Muhammad, than a 30-year-old teacher, a 30-year teacher, with no history of anything remotely close to bigotry. claiming that she doesn't know the teacher. Ibtihaj Muhammad attended the same elementary school where Herman teaches. They go to the same gym. They work out with the same trainer. They even exchange phone numbers after Herman asked about Muhammad returning to school to speak to students. And not long before the incident, Herman hung a poster of Muhammad outside her classroom. She used Muhammad in her lessons about perseverance, persistence, dedication, etc. So to say that they don't know each other is just absurd. This is relevant since it was Muhammad's social media posts that turned the incident into a national news story when the Olympian decided to take the side of the anti-Semitic parents and the seven-year-old that 
might have embellished or misunderstood or whatever it might be. And I'll remind you of many, many stories that care initially posts and, and, and represents. Remember the subway story of the young girl that talked about being tortured and abused by folks on the subway because of her hijab or because of being Muslim? And it turns out later she openly admitted and was arrested by the New York City police for fabricating a story that she lied about and made it up. Now again, nobody's saying this poor seven-year-old girl did this, but she's being used by care. She's being used by her parents and being used to defame a teacher. And lastly... Kerr has the temerity to say, well, because Herman acknowledges pushing the girl's hood back, Kerr argues that statements about the incidents are substantially true. Whether it was an innocent mistake or a racist Islamophobic attack that merits immediate termination is a simple difference of opinion and not matter for the courts. Her attorney, Herman's attorney, Dikma, says it's akin to arguing that there's no difference between tapping someone on the shoulder versus hitting someone or assisting an elderly person down a staircase versus showing an elderly person down a staircase. Shoving. Down a staircase, rather. So, this is the difference. It's all about intent. It's about truth. And it's about Islamists always wanting the upper hand. It's about Islamists always wanting to tell the West school systems teachers and others that they are evil I begs the question every time why do you stay in this country if you think everybody hates you why do you stay if you're going to fabricate things on the premise that somehow your default is that things are done because of bigotry because of anti-muslim hatred rather than your default being that it was a misunderstanding is that it was well intended or Maybe the girl forgot her hijab that day and was wearing a hoodie. She couldn't see out, and the teacher just wanted her to be engaged in the class. All very important. Very important for sort of the attitude in which our kids grow up in this society. Are we creating larger chasms of division between being Muslim and being American? Or are we bringing together this idea of the American dream and Americanism and defeating the idea of political Islam and the political badge that is their Islamist identity. The flag that is their hijab versus the personal pietistic practice that is their hijab. Thank God this teacher is defending herself in court. Thank God that she has the courage to do so and is taking on these Islamists who continue to lose from state to state as we saw here in Arizona, as we saw with the paintings and of the um, repudiation of that poor teacher that decided to show a picture of the Prophet Muhammad. And we'll stand by to hear what happens with this case and I'll continue to bring it to you here on Reform This. Well, it's great to be with you, all of you you this week, and stay strong. Happy Mother's Day again to all your mothers out there. Find me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R, and also on Facebook at MZ Jasser. God bless you. We'll see you soon. Stream 
and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.